Hello there, and welcome back to Tales from a Cult Insider. This is episode 24, which is actually season one, episode 24. And it is called, Okay, I Had a Crush. I am your insider and your former unwilling cultist, Jared Garrett, and I am here to tell you stories about growing up in a Scientology splinter cult. If you've gotten to this point by now, by golly, you shouldn't need this intro, so I'm going to go quick. So as you know, more than likely, unless this is the first episode you listen to, which is fine, because they're not, they don't go in order. I was born and raised in a cult. I escaped when I was 17. Today's episode is not about my escape. Nope. It was a real life commune and cult. For real. <laughs> it started out in the 60s as an offshoot of Scientology. It was called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. Uh, for a little while, it was infamous in the UK and the USA. About the time I was born, it schismed, and uh, some adherents went with the process portion, which became, I think, the process church of the millennium, or process church, I don't know what it was. And then the others made a new one that was still a cult and a commune, and it was called the Foundation Faith of the Millennium, later the Foundation Faith of God, and later Best Friends, which is not a cult or a commune. It's just doing great stuff to help out animals. I'm here to tell you some of the stories about growing up in this somewhat strange fairly secretive religious commune. As always, your questions will be answered. Don't hesitate to ask. Contact me at jared at jaredgarrett.com with comments, questions, speaking engagements. If you're an agent looking for my memoir, it's written and I'm querying it, baby. Let's get this show on the road. So I have only one question, which is kind of interesting. I had questions kind of hot and heavy some time ago and then none and now just final one, which is very convenient and that's why I'm featuring it on this podcast. It's from, just from Chris from Provo. Don't know who you are. Thanks, Chris. You're just asking, why are you taking a break? Yeah, as I've mentioned in the previous episodes recently, I am, uh, this is the last episode of season one. It's episode 24, as I said. And I'm going to take a three to four month break and you'll see podcast, new episodes coming up around uh, fall or just before the end of summer. So you'll see some stuff either in August or September. Certainly no, no later than the beginning of September. New episodes there. Why am I taking a break? Uh, because I've got a lot I'm trying to get done. I'm struggling to get it on, all done. Uh, just to kind of tell you what that all is. Um, my wife is a full-time law student at the law school here in, in Provo. Um, and that's fantastic. She is doing that um, because she, you know, she wanted to have a career. And what's more, I asked her if she would be interested in getting me out of the corporate world. And she was very much up to the task. And she is my knight in shining armor, baby. Uh, and her armor is a business suit. So thank you, Anne-Marie. You're great. Um, it, it, her being full-time law student means that I'm essentially a stay-at-home dad, except for that I do have a, a job at an office. And so I have to go to that office and be in a desk for eight hours a day, uh, up to nine hours a day uh, sometimes, and still do my job and but I still, you know, shuttle kids some places and pick them up sometimes, even though Anne Marie's able to do that, which has been wonderful. Um, and I still get them to doctor's appointments and um, other things and, uh, you know, the other kind of keep the home type things um, along with my job and writing. And writing has been slow going of late. I have not uh, put together the words that need to be put together at the volume that they need to be put together in. My productivity's down. I need some time to focus on on my books and on querying uh, with my, my memoir. And so it's time to just set this aside 
uh, certainly coming back. I mean, it's been a lot of fun. We're at, we are thundering towards 3,000 total listens uh, in this, the 20, by, by, by the end of this 24th episode. That's kind of amazing to me um, to have such a, it's not, I mean, wildly successful, but it's certainly successful. So thanks for you listeners. And that's why I'm taking a break. I have other things I need to do. I think it's an appropriate time to take a break. I know other podcasts, podcasts take a break, uh, writing excuses, which is a podcast I listen to intermittently when I have time, uh, takes breaks and does their seasons, which is fantastic. Um, and season two should have a couple of fun surprises, a couple of fun little things for you guys. Um, and, uh, this'll just be some time for uh, all you all to catch up on all the episodes. Those of you who have just uh, shown up and maybe this is your first episode, go back, listen to the first one and come on through. Uh, there are lots of interesting stories and we're going to get to today's stories uh, right now. Yes, the episode is called, excuse me, I can't speak wordage. The episode is called, okay, I had a crush. Now, I'm a human dude, right? I grew up a human dude. And humans tend to get crushes. Not all of them do, of course. I mean, I know some people who are just not particularly interested in, you know, the gender to which they might generally be attracted to. That's fine. No worries. I was. I never, I mean, I don't remember a time that much time in my life in which I didn't have a crush. I was a little bit overactive there. But I had a crush for a long time once. I want to tell you the circumstances of it. And the only reason I'm telling you this is because it might illustrate, well, for two reasons. I shouldn't say only reason. There are two main reasons I'm telling the story. Um, no, let's make that three. I'm like the Spanish Inquisition. The first is uh, it's somewhat embarrassing, but not really. And it'll give you a view into me, um, which is fun. Uh, two, it'll give you a view into, give you the context of the story and the details of the story should actually help you get a greater and deeper understanding of what the culture of and what the day-to-day -day of growing up in this commune cult was like. And last, um, because it's kind of some fun flavor. Uh, yeah, you can grow up in a cult and commune in a very sheltered place, and you can still have, you know, the angst that comes with teenagerness. So, uh, when I was... I, I can never remember right, and I've told the story only a couple of times. I don't tell it a whole lot. But I'm telling it to all y'all listeners. Uh, I'm allowed to say y'all. I lived in Dallas for seven years. So I get it. It's my right man. Anyway, so all y'all listeners, you, um, as I was saying, you, you, you're hearing this story. I've only told the story a few other times verbally. So it's about age 14, uh, probably my second year being shipped out to best friends to help build the things and to help tap water tables and to lay a lot of pipe. Uh, to do drywall, to scoop a large, large, large amount of dog poo that was baked to smelly in the sun. Um, man, alive, I tell you what, we would fill up these pickups full of big black trash bags of dog poo, and then they would go somewhere. And I don't know where those, ba those bags of dog poo were going. I never did find that out. But I just heard that Tyson, the guy who I often worked with at the dogs, uh, is kind of taking a soft retirement from, from best friends. What a wonderful man he was. He's just a good man, and I'm so excited for him and for this new stage in life. I'm so glad that he was able to find his calling and find a great place for him to be for so much of his life. Tyson, you're the bomb, and I remember when you started coming around in Dallas. Uh, good man. So, okay. Uh, second year that I was shipped out there, 
Uh, I'd been doing work just like usual. And um, I walk up into the village, which is the, the main kind of gatherings place for uh, people who work there now. It's where the main kitchens are, where employees and volunteers go for lunch. Obviously, it's vegetarian um, now. It wasn't always. Um, I, I made plenty of meat foods up there, I tell you. Uh, and um, I get there after work one day and hear this delightful, delightful voice and it's probably influenced my life quite a lot since then because I have a real thing for Scottish accents. It's this girl who I've never seen before. And that's, an, that's a weird thing for me. That's a weird thing for most of us kids, I believe, because we were growing up together. We knew everybody, or at least we knew who they were. Nobody knew ever showed up unless they were like a new acolyte or a new uh, joiner of the, of the foundation. Uh, this was a new girl younger than me by two or three years, I believe. Um, beautiful. I mean, as I'm 14, okay, so she's not that, she, she's not a big girl. She, she's still a tween. Although back then we didn't even have the term tween, honestly. It's a, it seems like a new development. Um, but in my 14-year-old mind, I thought she was beautiful. I thought she had a beautiful, cute smile. I loved her hair, how it came down just past her chin. Uh, quite blonde, um, kind of a honey blonde. Um, or a wheat blonde, you could say, whatever. Anyway, so um, that was kind of cool for me to hear this voice and see this beautiful girl. And it was kind of cool for for me to, for there to be someone different. That was quite surprising. Uh, but then I watched her a little bit and thought, well, she's just kind of cool. She had a great laugh. She um, had a beautiful smile, in my opinion, back in the day. And I just kind of got quickly infatuated before I even met her, right? But then it turned out she was a sort of a distant cousin of one of the girls in the cult uh, named Leonora. And Leonora uh, and I were good friends. Um, I She's the one who got those, you know, some like 10,000 lines uh, for being irritating to Lucia, apparently. So anyway, uh, this was a distant cousin of Leonora. And so Leonora was kind of her her person that she glommed onto, that they spent time together and Leonora took, kind of took her under her wing and made sure that she got around where she needed to and was her playmate when there was playing, which there was sometimes. And so Leonora, who I was her friend, we, I was one of her closer friends there. And, and, I, and I believe that that was uh, one of the better things I did growing up was be her friend because she deserved it. Um, and um, she didn't like deserve me as a friend. She deserved a friend because she was a bit of a, an outcast. Uh, in any case, Leonora introduced the Sharon girl, and I'm sitting in one of the sinky kind of loungy chairs in the sunken space in the off the off the dining area there at the village, and uh, Sharon is all comfortable and all herself and really comfortable in her own skin, uh, which I was uh, foreign to me. Foreign to me, I always felt like I was had to put up a front, you know, to to. to to, to make sure that people didn't realize how awkward I was or to make sure people didn't realize how deeply feeling I was because I was feeling stuff all the time. I was having strong reactions to everything and I had to bury it deep. But she just sits on the arm of that thing and kind of quirks a smile down at me and talks to me a bit and is sweet and asks questions and, and I ask questions and we just get along really well. We had a great conversation. Uh, and before too long, Leonora was sort of being left out as we flirted a little bit and got along really well and made friends. Uh, but then Leonora got her back, which was appropriate. I mean, I shouldn't, I shouldn't monopolize the poor girl. This girl was named Sharon. And uh, Sharon McGee, I'll say. I don't, 
I've looked for you on Facebook. If you ever listen to this, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to see how you're doing. Um, I'd be delighted to hear that everything is well for you. But if it's not, I, I, I'd love to be your pal still. Uh, so I uh, got quickly infatuated um, and spent that summer infatuated. Although it wasn't that long, she was there for just a couple of weeks. And we, we spent some time together talking and chatting. This was not one of those summer romances you read in the young adult type books, right? This is not a thing where you... You sit at the edge of a pier and kicking your feet and talking and having heart-to-hearts where a sweet little tender kiss is shared. Nope. This was not that. This was just two people, uh, young, young people who really had no business feeling what we decided that we were, we were feeling. Um, I mean, no, I, let, me, let, let me rephrase that. I mean, of course, uh, puppy love is, is great and people deserve it and are entitled to feel it. And having that experience of a crush is a powerful, uh, transformative experience. You know, it's a, it, I recommend it, right? But, you know, having designs on a future together would, was silly at that age, of course. Um, but at that age, everything means so much. And at, at my age today, everything means so much too, you know. In any case, I'm babbling. Uh, nice little summer, or nice little interlude in that summer. Um, and, um, I was completely just head over heels for her. Didn't know if she felt the same for me. Uh, but I, I had every intention of, um, trying to keep in touch. But the thing is she was just gone all of a sudden. I'm not sure why she left as quickly as she did, but I didn't have a chance to get contact information for her, which was so frustrating to me. I mean, why? I, I, I just hadn't moved quickly enough to get her like an address I could send letters to, right? Which was unfortunate. So that was the end of that summer. But I thought about her all the time. Uh, I drew really terrible pictures of her. Um, And then before long, uh, just basically she became the focus of any kind of amorous feeling I had. So I didn't, obviously growing up in the cult, I had no opportunity, but I figured uh, I had no opportunity for romantic relationships. But she was just you know, pie in the sky, torch carrier. I carried a torch for her. Um, and that was the end of that summer and I wasn't able to stay in touch. But then I found out that Leonora had her address. And so upon getting her address from Leonora, I wrote a letter. And um, then we started communicating through letters. And then the next summer... <clears throat> We both knew we were going to be at best friends, and we were delighted. There was excitement in um, our communications that we'd see each other, which was kind of cool, right? That's kind of a nice thing. And um, then we didn't. That's right. We didn't see each other that summer, although we were both at best friends. Why? How? Simply because the times that we were there did not line up. She was there after I was. And I don't... I, I. I don't think that that was by design because I don't think the members of the cult, the leadership and stuff of the cult, knew about our <clears throat> sort of budding relationship, right? Um, but it just didn't line up. But luckily, Leonora was there when Sharon was there, and she got her picture. And I got a picture of Sharon that time, and she's so cute. I thought she was adorable. I think about myself and my reaction to that picture and how often I stared at that picture, and I was pretty adorable too. Um, but here's what I did, you know, so that was a whole year and we didn't connect, we didn't cross paths. And then, so we had another year to wait until the summer again. 
when she would hopefully show up again from Scotland. <clears throat> and so, you know, we spent that year communicating here and there um, by letter and um, having a nice time getting to know each other and um, all that stuff. And then um, the next summer, it just didn't work out. I think she just didn't even go. Um, and so that was disappointing. And then there was one more summer. And it was my last summer in the cult. And, um, and I didn't know that, although I sort of knew that at the start. But during the time where I was holding the torch and I was um, communicating with her and thinking about her far more than really I should have, I was such a, such a romantic, such a dramatic romantic. Um, it, it's interesting. It became a bit of a, a bit of an inspiration. To tell you the truth, a bit of an inspiration. And, and you're going to laugh. And if you laugh, that's okay. But, you know, search your dark, craven soul, your withered, withered little heart there. And think about this. All I had for influence was stories, right? Books and uh, the movies that we intermittently got to watch and some TV shows that we got to watch. And uh, think about how things were often depicted, how the dude was a hero to save the girl, right? Help the girl, uh, rescue the princess or whatever like that. You know, it's fair. It's a pretty common trope. And if you remember Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, clear, obviously I was well out of the cult by the time that movie came out. Um, it begins with it all started with a girl, Mary Jane, MJ, right? So for me, my desire, my deepest, strongest desire was to have a true love in my life who I was, her, her true love, you know, and, um, but I didn't want to take any chances that I wouldn't deserve her, that I wouldn't be able to, um, to be with her. I wanted to make sure I was my very best self. Now, it's an interesting thing because it's very good to see yourself as in need of improvement. But why did I feel like I would I wasn't good enough for her? Why did I spend my whole my whole teenagerhood, those four years that I carried a torch for her? Why did I spend that time thinking that me, just as me, would never be good enough, would never be enough for her? I would need to somehow improve myself. So um, it's a question that I think about sometimes, and it's part of the reason why the uh, my memoir is called "Hey Kid, There's Nothing Wrong with You." Because really deep in my heart, um, when I would stop and get pretty introspective, I definitely thought there was something wrong with me. I thought that I had been rejected uh, by my parents. I mean, granted, the cult expected uh, parents to leave their kids into the commune part, into the raise the kids part, right? They called it the children's center sometimes. But that didn't make any sense. The only reason a parent would actually do that is if they didn't like their child. Because obviously their kids should come before a cult. Giving, giving into the cult's demands like that was, um, wasn't weak on the parents' part. It was them realizing they didn't like their kid very much, probably for reasons, probably kid reasons. And in my mind, deep in my heart and my soul, I knew that there was something wrong with me that had made me merit being left, uh, which was obviously not true, but was a reality to me. Uh, it was a quiet Never really understood deep, fully reality until much, much, much later when I started having reactions to learning about my own uh, internal fundamental worth. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a moving time for me to start finding out about 
who I really am and what what I really mean and what value I have just as as me, just like you. You have value just as you. Just like Mr. Rogers said, I love you for who you are. Um, and that's lovely. So, and no, I never watched Mr. Rogers growing up. Every so often I saw an episode and thought it was pretty corny. I'm really touched by his life, by what he did, by his work. Um, but yeah, as a kid, it made no difference to me. So, um, which is a shame because that might have been nice if I'd really been able to internalize what he was saying. So again, she became an inspiration. I wanted to be the perfect man for Sharon so that she wouldn't reject me, so that she would be delighted to have me and I could be everything she ever wanted or needed in life. So I already told you that I got money sometimes, right? I spent it on sweets and got pretty rotund. Uh, and by, but, but at the age of about 13, 14, uh, really closer to 14, I started deciding to fix that. And so I, I continued to eat treats because treats are where it's at, guys. But I started to work my butt off. You know, I started exercising. I would bike, jump rope, uh, do a lot of boxing, sparring on a heavy bag, on a, on a speed bag. I did a lot of weights and crafted my body into a pretty solid, well-fit machine, which helped me over kind of throw off some of the, some of the, the danger and the threat that I felt coming from the cult. Because there was always, until I was able to feel strong and capable, there was always a threat of violence, right? But by the time I was 17, there was nobody in the cult that could hurt me. Just period. There was nobody who could hurt me. I felt for, totally physically competent that I could fight off anybody who tried to put their hands on me at that point. Uh, in any case, so out of being inspired by my love for Sharon, I got myself physically fit and I started getting my temper under control a little better. Um, and like I talked about that, I had a problem with temper. Uh, I was also very disappointed in myself for having such a problem, but also it was, she was a motivating factor. What, what what good would I be if I just gave into my temper all the time? I uh, started really trying to come to terms and peace with myself um, and started to read a little more uh, and read maybe some nonfiction and write, try to create a bit of a career, all because I wanted to be the best man I could. And yes, for her. Ultimately, you know, deep inside, on some level, I knew I, I'm pretty sure I knew that um, it didn't matter if it was for her or for anybody else, but it was for my true love. And at that time, in my mind, Sharon was my true love. So thank you, Crush, for being that inspiration. Uh, granted, it came from also a deeper kind of not great place of not knowing my own value and think that, thinking that I was broken or corrupted, but I'll take it, honestly. I'll take it. I'll take knowing that I could work, you know, gaining the knowledge that I could work really hard and improve myself. Uh, I'll take that uh, and see it as armor and sword rather than baggage to carry and drag me down. So um, I am grateful for this four-year crush that I had. And let me tell you the rest of the story about Sharon. So uh, we didn't see each other for a long time. We communicated uh, I got it wrong, by the way, earlier. I didn't. We didn't start communicating after the first summer. We actually only started communicating well after the second summer, where we missed, where we weren't able to cross paths. Um, we communicated for about a year and a half, and um, not even quite two years. And uh, you know, letters from the states would take forever to get to Scotland, and letters coming back from Scotland would take forever. And so, really, we'd get a letter about every month to six weeks or so. But we were we were really good about writing to each other. Uh, she wrote long letters. I wrote long letters. Her handwriting was really cute. Mine was terrible. Uh, it's gotten worse as I've grown up. Um, and the the Christmas of 1990, I was still in the cult. 
and uh, I was um, 16, and I was in love with this girl in Scotland, and I had some money saved up from some okay, sometimes generous allowance when, when we got it, and with some birthday money from earlier in the year, and I had a plan. So for Christmas of 1990, me, 16-year-old, sent I sent Sharon, 13 or 14, a dozen roses in Scotland, and I made sure that they were going to show up either on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve with my name on them. And it worked. They showed up there when they were supposed to. A dozen red roses for Christmas. <laughs> we didn't have any each other's phone numbers, so I couldn't hear an immediate reaction. Obviously, today it would be all over Instagram, right? But no. <laughs> Or she'd be texting and photographs. It'd be funny. Or we'd do a, a hangout or just a live call. Um, is it a snap? I don't know, man. What are those newfangled things these kids are using today? Uh, that was me at my high cooest, right? Uh, as Wayne and Garth would say. Um, I got a letter a few weeks later. Um, and um, that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. Uh, she was thrilled. She was blown over. Uh, by having flowers. Her family thought it was hilarious and wonderful and probably a little scary that this guy, this kid in the cult that her that, that their family had joined was kind of after their, <laughs> their daughter. Uh, and then uh, summer rolled around, or summer was rolling around, and it the cat was out of the bag. Uh, that story became legend. I had sent this girl roses, um, and uh, other people had let the cat out of the bag. I'm sure Leonora had probably mentioned it eventually because she sometimes had loose lips there. And then I'd mentioned it to a couple of the guys, and I'm sure they passed it along. But it was known. It was common knowledge at this point, although not like the adults wouldn't like hold it over me. Uh, but they knew. Everybody knew that uh, Sharon and I had intentions for each other. Um, and so uh, I turned 17, and summer was coming up. And uh, we finally got on the phone sometimes, which was amazing and, and expensive. And then Sharon showed up in Best Friends. And we got on the phone some more because she was right there. And that was heart pounding and terrifying because we weren't supposed to be on the phone. We weren't supposed to be on the phone. Um, that's, we were not allowed, we kids in the cult. But she didn't give a crap. And honestly, at this point, I didn't give a crap either. It was time to talk to her. And we said, we're gonna see each other this summer. But because it was common knowledge, the cult people made sure we weren't going to. Um, they made sure that her trip was not going to line up with the uh, regular summer uh, kid trip to go up and do work. Uh, and then, uh, and that pissed me right off, guys. Oh, boy, I got so mad. Um, and then uh, it got me so mad that um, my plan that I'd been thinking about um, to try to get out, uh, I decided to implement it quicker, partly because Mark had been banished to the Faith Canyon, the old... Uh, kind of ranch, I said, you could say, in Arizona, which was the old headquarters, um, I decided that I was going to get banished there too, got banished there, and uh, talked to Sharon from there a couple of times, and she said, I'm not leaving this country until we see each other. And so she, it turned out, I didn't quite realize this, and honestly, uh, I'm still a little stunned at this, she was Mary Ann's niece, guys, Mary Ann de Grimston the lady who started the whole cult with her husband, Robert. Sharon was her niece somehow through some family relationship. And so Sharon went to frickin' Marianne and said, Marianne, Auntie Marianne, I guess it was, I'm good to see Jared. So 
that was an Irish accent. I have to see him, and that's that. Make it happen. And somehow Marianne said yes. What? I don't understand what Sharon had on this lady, but it worked. Sharon showed up at Faith Canyon when I was there. And boy, gosh, this has been this had been four years, right? That we had been holding a torch for each other. Well, pretty near to four years that we'd been holding a torch for each other, communicating for um, uh, less than half of that, um, and having just these romantic feelings for each other, right? And before she shows up, I find out that she's going that she, that she's coming. And so the kid who teased me incessantly, cruelly at times, Adam, uh, called Faith Canyon the day before Sharon arrived and said, Jared, you need to know, Sharon may not be the same person you remember. And I'm like, why are you telling me this? I thought you hated me. But it turns out he didn't. You know, he had a lot of, he felt protective to, to me, which is very sweet. I just wish he hadn't been so um, incessantly, relentlessly teasing to me. Um, but yeah, it was sweet for him to do that and say, hey, she may have different priorities and desires than you because you're a pretty tightly wound guy, Jared. And I was. You know, I was pretty straight-laced, and Sharon was not. Sharon was a partier. She was about 15, not quite 16, and she liked her alcohol, and she liked to do things. And I said, thanks for the warning. And Sharon showed up with her hair a little bleached, looking a little bit like uh, Samantha Fox. Uh, you know, Samantha Fox. Uh, Naughty Girls Need Love too. you know, from the 80s and stuff. You know what I'm saying? I think it was the 90s. Actually, that was in 1990, maybe. She looked a lot like her. Really cute, still really short. Um... And uh, it was delightful this year. And Sharon and I hit it off really well again. Uh, got along really well. Uh, had great conversation. Uh, and had literally no romantic spark. Almost negative romantic spark. I mean, I wanted to still love her. I wanted to still have a crush on her. But after just a few minutes, it was clear I didn't. And it was clear she didn't. And I was a catch. I was in great physical shape, man. I mean, I was hauling chains around. I was cleaning out orchards. I was driving uh, tractors and backhoes. I was kind of a stud, guys. I wasn't tall, but I was lean and I was pretty tough. And I had good hair, man, and a good smile. And I have good eyes, too. Just saying. And she was beautiful, too, but we, there, there was just no spark. Maybe it was expectations that just there was no way to live up to them. I don't know, man. There was nothing there, and it was almost a negative thing. It's not like we didn't get along, but it was like, oh, wow, we, I really have no romantic feelings for you. You're beautiful, and you're fun, and I like to hang out with you, and that's it. Um, <laughs> so four years of turning into an anticlimax, like, that was pretty cool. The further anticlimax is that I'm pretty sure she and Isaac hit it off pretty darn well. But that's just speculation, man. Um, and that was my crush. I had a crush for four years that ended that way. And um, that's all there is to that particular story. I, I really wish that we'd stayed in touch. And I wish that uh, we'd been able to, I could find her on, on Facebook. Why can't I find her on Facebook? I don't know. I don't understand. Uh, I've reached out to Leonora, who's on Facebook, and she has not been helpful. So I don't know where to go next. I don't want to look like some weirdo, but I'm really interested in reconnecting with her and making sure that, you know, we're friends still. Um because uh, she was a big part of my life in a way uh, for a lot of years, especially my formative teen years. And that's all I got. That's the end of season one, my friends. Um, it, I, hope, I hope that you get, you've really gotten a flavor of what life in this cult was like, how familiar it probably is to so many of you uh, as a teenager and having the angst and having the, 
having the concerns and the questions about your worth and questions about who you are, um, along with all these other things. It's, it's got, I really hope that you see that it was really normal too. Uh, I was a normal kid, but I was growing up in an extraordinary and abnormal way. Um, and today, I, I'm going to finish on this little note here. Today, uh, one of my kids, a couple of the, ki- of the kids, they hadn't cleaned up the room the way they were supposed to. They have to have their room clean in order to earn media time. Um, and I got home from work and they hadn't. And so there was a conversation had with those kids who live in the room together. There are three kids in this room together. We'd pack them deep, friends. Uh, seven kids. I've mentioned this, right? Okay. So, uh, and so I had to have a couple of conversations after one of the kids had lashed out a little bit the way he shouldn't. And he really reminds me of me at that age. Gosh, it's so funny how much he reminds me of me. Um, so I gave him a stern talking to, and there were apologies and there were expressions of love. And then as we sat down to dinner, because this was all happening while I was making dinner and I had to keep getting them to come down and have me talk to them. Um, we, as we sat down to dinner, the, this kid who had kind of, who had been the one who lashed out, who got kind of the brunt of, you're in trouble now. This is, you have to have a consequence for this because you don't use violence on anybody ever. We have a strong policy about no violence. Um, we don't like violence in words, physical action, anything. And so as we started to eat, uh, this guy was not really eating. His plate was clean and empty. And I'm like, do you not, are you not going to eat? And he's like, I'd lost my appetite. And he just looks kind of down a little bit, which he should be. And I should have been more sensitive to, to know that he, he was going to have that kind of reaction. Uh, he's a sensitive little boy. And so, you know, um, I had him come over and I gave him a big hug. And he just, he clearly was just 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 having an emotional time, which he should. He needed the, he needed the process, what he'd done, uh, and the anger that he knew would come from me, even though I wasn't yelling at him. Um, so he gave mom a hug too, and then we walked out and went into the living room, and we just snuggled, you know, for about five, six minutes, maybe more, not too much more. Uh, I mean, the enchiladas were still hot when I came back to the table, which is a new thing. <laughs> I rarely get to sit down on Wednesday nights. Anyway, um, and it's interesting to think about um, how how often my childhood and my past just come into my mind. Uh, normal day. I've had a normal day. I worked. I got a fair amount done. I wish I'd gotten more done at work. I did some exercising. I've got a lot of exercising done lately. Uh, I get home. Um, I'm with the kids. I talk to them. See how their day's been. I'm making dinner really fast. I, I mean, I put my bags down and start on dinner right away. Uh, and... and um, but then there I am. I'm sitting with this this little boy, redheaded. He's our only redhead, except for I guess, I guess the, the biological daughter is pretty redheaded. Anyway, and he's snuggled against me. I mean, he is pressed against me, right up against my chest, and his tears are there. And he really just needed that emotional release, and he needed someone he could do that with, uh, somebody he trusts and loves, and who loves him unconditionally. And I'm there snuggling with him, and there's nothing being said, just getting that good, good good, firm, long hug in, letting him get it done. And um, there my mind goes. My mind goes to, I never got that. It goes to, how could those people let the kids not get this kind of thing ever? I mean, when maybe when I was really little, three years old, I got the boo-boos kissed and the hugs. But I don't remember ever, ever feeling like I could be that kind of vulnerable, that kind of needy, the kind of, and the needy that you are freaking entitled to feel 
and to get met, to have that emotional need met. You're entitled to that as a kid, and I never got that. And I'm not saying this to have you feel bad for me, but I'm saying this to tell you that I don't understand. I don't think I'll ever understand how people could say kids don't need it. They don't need that kind of love. They don't need that kind of constant, unwavering support and being, knowing that there's someone, there is someone there that they can trust, that they can get weak with, that they can cry on, that they can need love from, need quiet from, need arms around them from. I don't understand it. I'm not being very eloquent, but I don't care. Hopefully you get what I'm trying to say. I am delighted and grateful that I got to do that. Um, I love, I love being a dad. I love being called a dad. And I don't understand, I don't understand how you give that up, being called mom or dad. How you see your kid, but no, but you're not being what they need. You're not being that parent. <clears throat> how twice a year lunches or phone calls or once a year lunches and two twice a year phone calls, I should say, how that's adequate, how you think that's adequate. Did they think that the that, that our caretakers were being our emotional support and unconditional love? They were not. And, and if they thought that, they would be deluding themselves. And I'm not angry about it anymore. I'm just so confused by it. I'm just confused by it. And today's experience of where I'm cuddling my boy and feeling as normal as normal could be, as normal and full of love as a family can be. And this is the best place to feel that kind of love is in a family. I'm telling you. I'm telling you guys. You got your kids. That's where the true love, the, the, this deepest wonderful love come, is experienced. <clears throat> I don't, and I'm feeling that. And then there's my childhood coming right back to me saying, you never had that, Jared. And I'm going to tell you something, and you can turn it off if you want to, because I'm going to be a little bit religious. God is good. He is good. I got to have my family. I have my family. And I get to hug them. And I get to improve myself as a dad. And I get to spend time with these beautiful, wonderful human beings and see them become better human beings and even become a part of coaching them towards that, despite the stuff I went through. So thanks for tuning in to this last episode that got a little bit long in the tooth. Thanks for being part of this, uh, this storytelling, and I hope that you have a great summer um, or a great whatever season you're listening to this in. I'll be back by, by the beginning of September of 2019. Episode 25 will come up, and it's already got a title, and it's called Random Double Standards. Thanks for tuning in. Support this podcast, and the way you can do that is you can share it, go on Instagram, go on Twitter. Use the hashtag Tales from a Cult Insider or just hashtag Cult Insider. Ping me on one of those. I'm just Jared Garrett on Instagram and Twitter. Support, Click the support link. Help me buy a loaf of bread or two here and there. That'd be great. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you in a few months. I love you guys. <laughs>